All right. We're very excited to have you here this morning with us, especially if it's your first time. My name is Tyler. I help out here around at uh, Soundhouse. And uh, if you are, are new this morning, uh, we would love to meet you. Uh, there are connect, uh, connection cards in the back foyer, which you can fill out and place in the offering boxes. Uh, if you want to get more information on what we got going on here, all our different ministries. And uh, we also have bulletins in the uh, back of the backseat pocket, the chair in front of you. Uh, where you can scan the QR code and check out all of our upcoming events. If you're watching this from home, you can also visit our website, soundhousechurch.com, get connected there. At Soundhouse, we love baby dedications, and uh, luckily for all of us, we have one coming up uh, during service, February 13th, next Sunday. Uh, if you'd like to dedicate your baby or child to Christ during this special service, you can sign up online by emailing Aaron at soundhousechurch.com. Chad. Thank you, Tyler. How's everyone doing? Feeling good? Feeling good? I, uh, if, if you knew, we've been announcing our, our men's off-road retreat, dirt. Uh, we just, that's going on right now. We've got about 30 guys out in the desert. I drove back late last night, and uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. It is, it's a weird set of muscles that you use for nothing else, you know, uh, I guess if you if you did spin bike or something, you know, you kind of that 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 position right there that leaned over, but whew, feeling a little tight. So if you see me uh, kind of limping around stage, you, you might understand that. Um, but uh, yeah, it is so good to be back and get to worship with all of you. And it was so good to be with men of the church out there, having fun and getting to know each other and 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 you know exploring and and doing stuff like that. You know, it's funny as we've been going there six years. So I think it's our fifth or sixth, you know, trip out there, and yet every year we keep finding new stuff. You know, we, we were riding in this canyon, took it all the way to the end, and then someone's coming, walking down this hill, and we said, what are we doing up there? And they said, oh, there's these caves up there. So now we're all hiking up in these caves, and it's just, it's a really fun just time of, you know, adventure, and you just get to know people so much more than, than simply at the donut table, you know? Uh, and I guess if I have one encouragement coming off of this uh, experience is I would encourage you, if this is your home church, to, to invest. Invest into the community of the church. Um, you know, I, I know people who like to plant churches, start churches, hand them off and move on and plant another one. And I do not understand those people for the life of me. Those first years were so difficult. And, and what I love is, is the, the, you know, just um, exponential sense of community that you get to experience year after year. You know, I remember when we, our, our very first year, you know, uh, Jack Park was, was in first grade. And seeing him run around now taller than most of us, it's, just, it's, it's crazy, you know. Finn was just born. And, and Dan, I should probably walk around there, don't Dan, excuse me. Yeah, Finn was just born. I love you. You can almost kind of age our church by Finn, you know, oh, we're talking now, okay, we're walking, you know, all that, but um, it's fun, and, and so I would encourage you, you know, community groups are going to be starting soon, um, but but take that step, uh, and it starts here on Sundays, but then it, it, it goes from there to lunch after Sundays, uh, and then, you know, uh, volunteering for something together, you know, you get to know people through that, and then eventually a retreat or something, but uh, it, it is just, it makes it so much more uh, rewarding and enriching the more you get to actually share your lives with the people that you also worship with. Uh, but that, that, all that to say, uh, let me pray and I'll get into the actual sermon, not my just uh, my, my soapbox sermon. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and all that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the power it has in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for even the conviction that it offers, as painful as that can be at times, we thank you for that because we trust you when you say that your way is better. We trust you when we choose to live by your wisdom, your righteousness rather than our own. And so we step out in faith today as we read some difficult passages and, and, and have some difficult conversations in the room as, you know, as we read through Luke 9. We pray that you remind us of the goodness that you offer through your way. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we are in uh, the, the Gospel of Luke. We, we started a series, the new year, where we are going to be walking through the Gospel of Luke between now and Easter. And then gospel, uh, not gospel, the book of Acts following. Uh, it's actually the same author. It's kind of a part one, part two of the book, Luke and Acts. Uh, they're meant to be read together, so we're going to teach them together. That being said, we're trying to make sure we end with the resurrection on Sunday, which means we are hustling through Luke, okay? So uh, Acts, we can slow down. We can take our time. We're looking forward to that. But we're, we're definitely moving through Luke, and I would encourage you to be reading Luke chapter, you know, each week on your own, um, to, to be diving into this on a slower level, maybe be asking some other questions. And to help you do that, we've been putting out a discussion guide. The discussion guide is available on the app, and we always have a printed version on the foyer. I see some of those already getting passed around. We have a printed version in the foyer on the little info table there. But those are meant for you to uh, work through some of these questions, um, uh, to, to process, to, to think about application, maybe as an individual, maybe as a, a couple, maybe as a family, or maybe as a community group. Um, so feel free to use those and get into those. We are going to be picking up in Luke chapter 9. Um, but before I get to that, I have to tell you a story about my neighbor. My neighbor is, uh, his name is Gary. And I even just laugh saying this because um, we've had some people in the church live with us at times. And they've, they have met Gary through this process of, of, of staying at our house, you know. Um, Gary is uh, one of the nicest guys you'll meet. He's uh, probably late 60s. Got a good beer belly going, and uh, probably have, has about six teeth to his name. Sarah, six, seven, somewhere in there. Um, but friendly. You know, every time you get out of your car, Gary's there to uh, talk to you about what's going on in the neighborhood and just welcome you home and, and all this. Friendliest guy, though, right? We've been living next to Gary now for eight years, and there's, we're in this weird situation where we keep getting glimpses of Gary's story, uh, of Gary's life. He keeps offering little, little bite-sized portions of the book of Gary, and every time we do, we are left questioning the entire book of Gary even more than we were the day before. Let me give you some examples, and before I say this, no, there are hundreds of examples, um, but let me give you a couple. So the first thing he told us is that uh, Gary mentioned that he used to be in IT, sounds good, and that he was actually on one of the first teams that was setting up like experimental Wi-Fi a long time ago. And they were traveling the world, setting up Wi-Fi. That's super interesting, Gary. That's good to know about your background. Great. You know, no questions yet. And then he goes on, a year or so later, mentioned that he actually used to be a police officer. Okay, wow. You know. Mentioned that he was a police officer until he was uh, dishonorably discharged and let go um, for going rogue on a case. That's either very revealing, Gary, uh, about, <laughs> you know, as I'm just kind of carrying the groceries in, um, 
in, interesting, you know, and uh, it was probably about a month later, he, he was telling me some other story and, and mentioned that he had, had shot a gun, not at a person, but that he shot a gun, and he, he was motioning like this, you know, like from the belly, and I'm putting the piece together saying, I don't think a police officer would be, would be, would be shooting like this, you know what I mean, so just putting this piece together, and, and Sarah and I would kind of walk in after one of us got a, a revelation of Gary, and we walk in to say, Gary just said this. And he's like, that's kind of crazy, you know? For a couple of years, we were just believing that Gary might just be the most interesting man in the world. I mean, just as, as his stories continued. He mentioned to me once that he used to be a tow truck driver. Okay, now that, that fits the bill. That, that makes sense of, of what I'm seeing. You know, he's always out there working on cars, too. Okay, great. And he said that actually one time when he was working as a tow truck driver, he actually picked up Hulk Hogan, who was on the side of the road. We live in L.A. Everyone's got a celebrity signing here and there. Maybe. But then he says that him and Hulk actually became friends, and he says that Hulk Hogan actually still invites him every once in a while to parties at his house, but he doesn't go because he's kind of not into that scene or whatever. You know, and we're just like, I don't, I don't think a celebrity would be throwing his phone number out to a tow truck driver saying, hey, come by any time. We're having people over, you know. But I, maybe, you know. And then for me, the, uh, the, the straw that broke the camel's back is when he mentions that he was in the Air Force. And, okay, that Gary, you know, 40 years ago was probably a different Gary, and it sounds good. But then he says that the Air Force still calls him whenever they need fighter jets moved around the U.S. So, yeah, he said, oh, you know, sometimes they're on the, the West Coast, they need them in the East Coast. So they give him a call. Hey, hey Gare, we're, uh, we're, we're needing to move some, some, you know, what, $35 million jets around the, the country. Can you come help us out, you know? And he's like, oh, I, 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 I come help out whenever I can, you know? And he's not joking, is it, you know? Um, Ryan would love this. If you guys know Ryan... Ryan leans into weird. He leans into crazy. I can't tell you how many times we've been at a meal or meeting someone and someone says something really weird, you know, really takes the conversation aside. I kind of say, sounds good. It's nice to meet you. Have a great day. You know, it's, it's time to go. And Ryan will just like, tell me more, you know, and he'll, he'll pull up a chair. Anna, you, you know this, right? Ryan has the craziest stories because Ryan just leans into crazy. And, um, I, I don't have that, though, so, so I say, you know, he says the Air Force still calling about moving jets. I go, oh, sounds great, you know, and walk inside. And, but, yeah, Sarah and I keep picking up these stories and stories and stories of the, as I said, the book of Gary, and it makes it more and more difficult to kind of believe anything that he has said. Um, like I said, he's either the most interesting man in the world or he's just lying for no apparent reason. I, I, I don't get it. Um, but uh, anyway, so that's Gary. And as I said, the more I hear, the more it makes uh, a, a bigger commitment, a bigger commitment to accept Gary in all of his details, right? To, to believe in who Gary is. The, the, the ask keeps getting bigger and bigger. Well, I bring this up because in, in Luke chapter 9, we are going to be getting these really strong affirmations of Jesus. These really strong affirmations of his identity and his purpose here on this earth. And as we do that, what is asked of us as believers and as followers continues to get greater and greater and greater. The commitment of what it means to be a believer in Christ and then a follower of Christ becomes greater and I think it's important that we acknowledge these. You know, there are plenty of people around the world who see Jesus as a, a, a moral philosopher who had some progressive ideas for his time. 
and uh, agree with his statements and, and believe that his statements might be good for society and stuff like that. But, but that's very different. And when you, when you read some of these things to identify who he is and what he's doing, you cannot just you know, subjugate him just to this moral philosopher, to this friendly guy. We have to take all of who he is or none of it. So I want to start with that in Luke chapter 9, verse 10. We're going to read this. In, in, in verse 10, I'll be reading out of the NRSV, but, uh, you know, um, as, as we keep saying, Gary and our, uh, not Gary, ooh, Larry, hmm. Ooh, the mask came off. That's what I was really talking about, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I've been, I've been uh, being blessed to get to sit in on, on Larry and Sue's um, community group, and as we've been talking about, the best translation is the one you will read. Uh, so whichever one you like, you've got in your hands, that's great. Um, but we're going to pick up in verse chapter 10. And what happens at this moment is Jesus had sent out the disciples, and now the disciples have returned. And we're going to pick up in verse 10. It says, On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. And he took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bithynia. When the crowds found out about it, they followed him. You know, they had, disciples had gone out. People had been hearing about Christ, hearing about the kingdom of God. They don't fully understand it, but there's buzz going on. So people start gathering to him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed to be cured. People are coming, they're gathering. There's a lot of buzz in the region. Verse 12. That day was drawn to a close, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions. For we are here in a, desert, in a deserted place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. He's, he's provoking the disciples. Oh, just feed them. Right? You give them something. He's, he's, he's getting the disciples to a point where they must acknowledge that they are at their, their, their limits. He, they said... We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, families included. You know, there's estimates of 10 to 15,000. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did so and made them, uh, and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and all ate and were filled, and what was left over was gathered up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now usually, as I said, we're moving fast through this chapter, right? We're moving fast through the book of Luke. You could do an in-depth sermon on almost each story in, in, the, in the chapter of 9, um, but here's what we're doing. And they're starting to ask themselves how this is happening but he's asking, who do they say that I am? Here's what Jesus is doing. He is trying to process with his disciples, how is everyone interpreting me? Something just happened, but how are they interpreting me? Let's keep going. Verse 19, they answered, John the Baptist but others, Elijah, and still others, the one of the ancient prophets has arisen. Sorry, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. So they're all watching this, and they're trying to interpret what just happened. 
And it's clear that they all agree that whoever this person is, he has power to do something. Maybe this was Elijah returned, as the prophecies had said that Elijah would do before the Messiah were to come. Maybe it's John the Baptist. He had a big crowd before. Maybe it is an ancient prophet who's arisen from the dead, and he's doing something miraculous because they're seeing something miraculous. The point is this. Um, have you ever seen something incredible that, like, David Blaine or Chris Angel has done, you know, on YouTube or whatever? Do you instantly say, that is God? No, of course not, right? Like, you say, well, that's crazy. How did he do that? And that's why Jesus is processing with his disciples, okay, something miraculous just happened, but what's the buzz? What are they all interpreting me as? And it seems clear they're interpreting you, Jesus, as someone of power, someone of significance, but that's it. Verse 20, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God. Now, Messiah, you can actually throw this up there. Um, the Greek word is Christos. It's where we get the word Christ. Uh, it means fulfiller of, ancient, uh, fulfiller of Israelite expectation of a deliverer, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus takes it as his last name, right? That's who he is. Um, but here's the thing. We read this and we say, oh, Peter gets it. Peter sees that this is God in the flesh. Peter sees that this is, this is who we now know as Christ. But we're jumping the gun there. We're reading this in, in hindsight. We're interpreting that word Messiah through who we know Christ to be, through the crucifixion and through the resurrection. They did not have that yet. And yes, they had the Old Testament prophet prophecies of a Messiah who would come, but it was not even this clear. It was from multiple authors, suggested different things. Their religious leaders were interpreting and debating who this Messiah would be and what he would look like when he came, what kind of work he'd be doing. What they believed in is that he would be an agent of God, of God's will, that this individual would come and God's will would be carried out. But that was it. And yet this idea of Messiah could look so different to different people. Let me give you an example of what Messiah would look like or what salvation would look like. If your house was on fire, what would Messiah look like to you? It would look like this, right? That's Messiah. With your circumstances that you're in at that moment, that's what you'd be thinking of. If you're dying of dehydration, Messiah would look like this. You know what, uh, next one, but I, I didn't even think about it. Fire trucks filled with water too. That was, that was dumb. I could have just <laughs> sent one up there. Didn't think about it, yeah. If you are, are drowning in crippling debt, Messiah looks like this. Yeah. I was thinking actually like a, a lottery ticket or whatever, but then we were on the truck team, so we stayed with thing. How many of us, our first words would say, Lord, purify my heart. Lord, let me never be separated from you. Let me be a greater disciple of you. Is that what's on your mind right now? Or would you first ask for job security? Would you ask some freedom from debt? Would you ask that COVID would be over? Uh, if you've been trying, would you ask for a child? If you have too many, would you ask for a break from your children? <laughs> um, my point is, it's easy for us now to say the word Messiah, to say the word salvation, and say, yep, I know what we're talking about, and assume they knew what they were talking about. But these were working men and women who came out with their families out to the hillside. And they're trying to interpret what's going on in front of them. 
And they're saying it's clear that he is a man of, of power, a man of significance. But I don't think you would jump to the conclusion that this is God in the flesh. There's this one story that's burned in my memory. I think I've shared it before, but it's so practical. Uh, the last church I worked for, I had a coworker, and uh, he was driving somewhere with his family, and they pulled over the gas station. He went into the gas station. Wife and all the kids are in, are in the car, and a, a man walks out from the, the canyons. What kind of canyons everywhere, you know, in San Diego? Walks out from the canyons wearing a robe, wearing just a bathrobe. Long beard, long hair, comes up to the window and knocks, and she rolls down the window and he says, he says, I am Jesus returned. Can I speak to your children? Okay, so every parent in the room would say, no! Like, <laughs> you're not just going to leave a homeless guy in the, in the back of the car with the, the kids because he kind of looks like who I imagine Jesus to be. You know, I, but I, I laugh at that because, oh my gosh, I would have done the same. But in the same way, why do we look back and say, wow, they were, I can't believe none of them responded to Jesus in this way. They were actively interpreting the man who was before them. And I bring this up because once again, for us, who you see Jesus to be has a, a correlating commitment. Is he a moral philosopher? Well, you can study him like you might study poetry. You can study him like you might study philosophy. Schneff, just, just met you this morning. Sociology major, right? If he's a moral philosopher, you can read him as a theory, just like in sociology, of how you see the world, how you see people, and interpret that to him. If he is God in the flesh, it is drastically different. It is drastically different. Let's keep going. In verse chapter 21. He sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must go and undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. How is it to help them with, with their issues of Rome or their issues of poverty or their issues of, of uh, abuse, whatever it is? How is that going to help anything? Verse 23, Then he said to them all, if you want to become my follower, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? He's setting up the expectation of what it means to be a follower of Christ. How many of you, when you were at the, the moment of conversion, were reading and focusing on that passage? We're saying, let me go and sacrifice myself. Let me, let me walk and carry, and carry my own cross. Let me die daily to myself, my selfish ambitions, everything that I want that's contrary to your kingdom. But it's so important that we see this as who Christ is is portraying himself as, who's revealing himself as. In verse 28, we get one of the greatest revelations of who Christ is, one of the greatest affirmations of who he is, his identity, and what he's doing. And I, I want to read this. It's, it's called the story of the transfiguration. And remember, the disciples, they're trying to figure out, too, who is this rabbi? Who is this man? Verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became like dazzling white 
suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. Now, Moses and Elijah are significant. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, two kind of the, the pillars of, of Hebrew holiness and, and the religious system. But think about this. Peter, James, and John, who did they think Jesus to be? Was he uh, a rabbi? Was he a rabbi who's also powerful? Uh, something's going on. He's performing these miracles. They're trying to interpret this. And then before their eyes, his very figure transformed. The appearance of his face changed, and he became dazzling white. And next to him are these two figures of Moses and Elijah that appear. He's more at this moment than a miracle worker. He is more than a a moral philosopher. He is more than a, a good teacher and more than a prophet. He is someone who simultaneously is, is walking the spiritual world and the physical world at once. Who is living as both the one who is ushering in the kingdom of God and yet transforming the kingdom of this world at the same time. It continues... They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Verse 32. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Some translations say tabernacle, tent. This is incredible. He is seeing a, a glimpse behind the curtain at the kingdom of God on this earth unfolding. He is seeing Jesus spiritualized with, with Moses and Elijah. And, and, and Peter says, let me build three tents so we can all just stay here. This is good. He wants to stay in this moment. Verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. We finally get this very explicit unveiling of who this is. This is my son, my chosen, my appointed, the Messiah. The Messiah that the prophets have been writing about since the time of Moses, explicitly said in the, the king of David and the prophets that followed, he's saying, this is the one. This is the one that you're waiting for. And he's my son. Listen to him. Following this, we have some more stories that kind of affirm his authority. He cast out demons. Uh, like I said, that, that he is not just a, a good teacher but that he has power, that he has authority, that he is God in the flesh on this earth to usher in this kingdom. But then I want to read one of the last, last sections of this chapter, starting in verse 57. And this is difficult. This is a difficult passage. But you know what? The, uh, the call to discipleship that we all have is difficult. And if it was too easy, I, I wonder if we understood it and we accepted it. 
if it was simply, hey, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and suddenly your relationships are all become easy, and you're going to be blessed in every way that just makes life super easy, of course, that'd be easy to accept. But, but listen to this verse, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. Jesus said to this individual, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go back. But Jesus said to him, the dead don't go to the but to you don't become the kingdom of God. There's a couple different interpretations of that. One is um, this, that the verse tense means it's possible saying that the following means of course the death. That he's saying, I want to follow this. I want to pursue this. Let me, let me, you know, stay home and kind of take care of the family for a while first. We'll get to some interpretation of this in a second. 61, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I said that is very, very difficult. Most people agree that this is what's called a, a Semitic hyperbole, that essentially it's a dramatization uh, to, to get a point across and not to be taken literally. And the perfect example of this is, if your eye causes you to stumble, cut it out and throw it away. No record of any of the disciples being one-eyed. You know what I mean? So um, th that, that was a possible teaching and writing style, which was called Semitic hyperbole, where you kind of dramatize a point through that. The fact that there's no answers given, usually when we have some of these, uh, seems to be a rich young ruler, stuff like that, there are answers given. There, there's more of this response. Uh, and here we don't see any of their answers. So it's possible it's that. The only way that I can read this section literally is if I assume what's going on in Jesus' head. You see, at this moment, Jesus has already turned his walking towards Jerusalem. He has begun the process of walking towards his own arrest, trial, torture, and execution. And someone saying, yeah, hey, this sounds fun, but let me get some stuff in order. Let me go do this first. Kind of sounds like, you know, arranging was it deck chairs on Titanic kind of thing. Of, um, that's the only way I can read this, you know, uh, that literally like that is if I, is if I assume that what's going on in Jesus' head is he was human, is the stress of knowing what's coming, the urgency of knowing what's coming, uh, that's pressing. So then someone's saying, I'm interested, but let me, you know, but, but first, he kind of stops it there and says, this does come first. It's interesting. You know, I titled this sermon... Christ without conditions. Don't worry, that was not the introduction. Throwing the sermon in pretty late. <laughs> the title in pretty late. Title the sermon, Christ without conditions. And this means believing in Christ as he presents himself. As God. Not believing in the God you want. We talked about what Messiah looks like to people in, in different positions of distress. That's great if you came to the church for a social reason, for uh, you know, a desire to, to get your house in order. That's great if that's what God used to call you here, but God is so much bigger than that. And Christ is coming in a way that is so much bigger than that. Messiah means God's agent, as he defines it. He gets to define salvation for your life, not yourself. And following Christ 
means following him without condition. It's the classic thing of, uh, of Lord, wherever you take me, but just not to a third world country, right? But not to there. Wherever you take me, as long as it's safe. I love, uh, we heard from, from Dave and Shannon last week, the founders of Rancho Hermosa, and I love that Shannon shared how scared she was going down to Mexico the first time, but they felt called to this. They felt that God was calling them to take care of the orphan, and they couldn't say no. That's what I'm talking about. Now, statistically, how many people are being sent to third world countries? Very, very few, okay? So, like, don't worry about that fear in your mind. But what I want to focus on is the idea is do you follow Christ but with conditions? God, I'll be there on Sunday. I'll worship. I'll open up my Bible, but just don't touch this subject. We cannot follow Christ with conditions. You know, uh, there's one commentary that I was reading on this passage, and I, I just loved how it said it, so I'm just going to share it. So the, the final scene, this paragraph we just read, which depicts the errors of would-be disciples who do not understand that Jesus is on the road leading to the cross in Jerusalem, challenges us with the radical demands of discipleship, of, uh, of following Jesus, becoming like him. Because faithfulness would require Jesus to lay down his life. The call to discipleship to Jesus inevitably means the unconditional commitment to the redemptive work of God for which Jesus gave his life. i got to read that again. The call to discipleship to Jesus inevitably means the unconditional commitment to the redemptive work of God for which Jesus gave his life. The disciple will be like the Lord. Therefore, one should not rush into discipleship with glib promises. On the contrary, the radical demands of discipleship require that every potential disciple consider the cost, give Jesus the highest priority in one's life, and, having committed oneself to discipleship, move ahead without looking back. This visual of, um, of putting your hand to, to the plow. I, I, I don't have a green thumb in my body. I'm not... Uh, <laughs> I had this moment the other day, uh, my oldest brother was in Hawaii and they bought this property, it's technically agricultural property, so they have to like plant something. Um, and then the next day, my, my nephews, they have chickens and they, they that's this picture, they, they built a little roadside booth and we're selling eggs. It's like, when did we become an agricultural family? We're all farming and weird. Um, but, <laughs> but I have to imagine, if your hands are on the plow, you're steering it, the ox or whatever in front is pulling it, but you're steering it. And if you're looking back, you are not looking where you're going. These plow lines need to be straight for the crops to be set right. If you're looking back, you're going to be steering all over the place. Their version of driving while texting, right? You're not actually paying attention to what you're doing, no matter how good I am at doing it. Um, this visual, no one puts their hands on the plow and looks back and is doing a good job. Well, that's, that's difficult. I think sometimes in the church we, we can have this idea, um, you know, everyone is welcome, but we can have this idea that we're trying to sign up as many people like it's a pyramid scheme. Get them in, get them in, get them in. We'll, we'll train them up later, just get them in. But think about this commitment. He's saying, don't put your hands on the plow unless you are ready to follow. This is difficult. I understand that. This is challenging. And so I wanted to share one example of when I when I was forced to do this myself, um, because I never want to leave it theoretical in our heads, I want to see it very, very practical and show you what this looks like. I had this experience in college, and it might sound um, uh, melodramatic, uh, 
uh, but it was big for me at that time. I was, I was stepping into my faith as an adult uh, on my own, and I was pursuing my faith. I was reading my scripture, and, um, but I was living in this apartment with two other guys, and uh, there was this circumstance that happened, right? So there's a girl in my department uh, at Point Loma Nazarene, the theology department. There's this girl named Keegan. Now, Keegan was smarter than the rest of us. <laughs> it wasn't even comparison. She was actually editing the books of some of the professors that they were publishing. She was doing the editing work for them, right? So just brilliant. Um, and I, I knew her a little bit through the classes, but wasn't really super close with her. And sorry if I told the story before. I don't think I have. Um, so, so Keegan is, is actually engaged at the time. And uh, she's been going through some premarital with her fiance, and they're both from this very, very small, um, you know, uh, agricultural town and uh, real, real close-knit community. And she's here, uh, but every once in a while she goes back for premarital. And as they've been doing the premarital, it became obvious that there was a, an issue, is that uh, the fiance was homeschooled and um, always wanted that life himself. He said he always wanted to find someone who would be like his mom was and, you know, have five, six kids and homeschool them all and, and, um, and, and have that kind of lifestyle. Well, as I said, Keegan was the smartest girl in the department, and she had ambitions. She's currently a theological librarian. Uh, that's, that's what she wanted to do. And, um, and, uh, and they kind of kept having this issue arise and arise, and they kept saying, okay, well, we'll deal with it. We'll deal with it at some point. It was one week before the wedding that finally it came down in the premarital counseling that she said, I will not be happy in life unless it is that life. And they called off the, the marriage, called off the wedding. Um, from a small town, it was late in the school year, and so she felt like she couldn't go home. She was embarrassed. She didn't want to see him. She didn't want to see everyone there. And her parents were split, and her dad actually lived in San Diego near Point Loma, and so that summer she moved in with him. So didn't have any community. You know, everyone goes home all summer. Didn't have her friends. And, uh, you know, her kind of future had crumbled right in front of her. And uh, she actually moved into the apartment half block down from, from me and a couple guys. Somehow we got connected. We were living the San Diego life. We bought a $600 sailboat off Craigslist and we're taking that out every day and having fun. And, and uh, anyway, so she ends up kind of getting in connected with us and, and, and hanging out with us. And, and by the end of summer, we became her family. We did. We became her whole community. Uh, it was the kind of thing, you come home from school and, and Keegan would just be there doing her homework, you know? Um, uh, she'd be, you know, come home, she'd be making dinner for everyone, just, just you know, she was a, a part of that community. We were her family. We were her, her whole social circle. One of the roommates, uh, his name was Drew, he said, um, hey, me and Keegan have actually been kind of developing feelings. We want to pursue a relationship. Is that okay with you guys? He asked me and the other roommate. We both said the same thing. Hey, that's great. Just remember what a sensitive time this is for her. I mean, her, her, her would-be marriage just crumbled in front of her got to be sensitive to that. So he, he says, oh, yeah, I get it. They start dating, um, moves very, very quick. They get physical very, very quick. And uh, about a um, couple weeks in or a month in or so, he loses interest. And he, he, he you know, does, doesn't want to be with her anymore, uh, found someone else he wants to date. That's fine. That's life. But then he says, hey, it's too weird and difficult to bring home my new girlfriend and have Keegan there. Uh, so I, Keegan's not allowed to be here anymore. Um, and, you know, we got in this big fight. We said, hey, this is exactly what we, were exactly what we told you. You've got to be sensitive about it. Like, this is, we are her entire family right now. And he kind of drew a line in the sand said, hey, she doesn't pay rent. I do. She can't be here. Um, and I don't know what it was at the time, but I just, I just, like, felt so heartbroken for this girl who was um, already so broken, 
you know? And I was mad. I was so mad. The other roommate didn't really say anything. And I was just, I was, I was so mad, you know, got in a yelling argument with, with the, the roommate, Drew, and, and I couldn't believe he would do that. And, and so mad that I, I couldn't go home for, for two or three weeks back to the apartment. I couldn't stand to look at him. I just couldn't. Some of you probably had this experience sometime in your life where you're just, you're just so mad at this person, you couldn't stand to look at him. I spent a week on the sailboat. That wasn't that bad. But, uh, the, you know, slept in my office a couple times. I just, I just couldn't, couldn't stand to look at this guy. And I'm reading my Bible, and I'm reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I do what most of us do with most passages. Say, mm, yeah, good words. <laughs> right? Good moral philosophy. I don't know what he's talking about. Keep moving. But I was reading a devotional alongside it, this, this old devotional called um, uh, The Utmost, no, uh, for the Master. Uh, oh, man, that's title. Henry Emerson Fosdick is the author. But Utmost, for, no, not Utmost for Eyes. That's, that's uh, Chamberlain. Uh, Manhood of the Master. There it is. Manhood of the Master. It's a character study on Christ. And, and uh, I was reading alongside that, and he references this passage, and he says, stop agreeing with this. Do this. Put this to practice. He says, right now, think of the person who has gone out of their way to cause you the most harm in your life. The person who has gone out of their way to cause you or someone you care about the most amount of distress. He said, right now, pray for that person. And don't just pray that, that God forgives them. Don't pray that they stop doing whatever they're doing. He says, pray blessings for them. Pray that they get everything they want in this life. Pray that, that, that God provides them a career and a family and, and, and a fulfilling life. Pray for these things. And he says, you will, you will utter these words through gritted teeth, but eventually you will see a miracle. And I did this because I wanted to? No. I didn't want to. I wanted to hate this guy. And I felt justified in doing so, right? That I, I felt justified in doing so, that I was looking out for, for someone who was hurting and, uh, but I did it, and, and I, he was an art major at the time, and I just would pray that his art just takes off, you know, and uh, they sell lots and lots of art, and um, <laughs> I prayed that this new relationship would, would, would bring him what he was looking for. Um, I prayed that he would have a fulfilling life, and I lied through all of it. I didn't want any of it. I didn't. I didn't want any of this form, but I forced myself to do it. I forced myself to do this a couple times a day, and and after about a month or two, I was able to just say it a little bit easier. And after a couple months later, I actually genuinely began believing it. To where now I can think about this guy, and I can want the best for him, and it doesn't just eat me away inside. The miracle happened, and it happened in me, is that God healed my heart, and I was able to learn to forgive the way Christ has forgiven me. But as I said, did I want to do that? No. Why did I do that? is because I have followed Christ without conditions. Because this word is not simply a good idea, is not simply a moral philosophy. This word is the authority in my life. And that when I read this passage, and when I read the teachings of Christ, I can't simply agree with them. I have to you know, have conflict with them. I have to process them. I follow Christ without condition. And so when he exposes something in my life, I have to deal with it. And it's not easy, and it's not fun. But I said in my opening prayer, the reason I do it is because I believe that his way is better. 
I choose to trust that his way is better. In the book of Proverbs, it, it, it talks about this idea of righteousness, uh, sorry, of wisdom. And wisdom simply is God's way of doing things. The wisdom it talks about in the book of Proverbs. It, it personifies wisdom as this young girl who's walking the streets and, and crying out, but no one's opening up for her, no one's letting her in. And what, what an incredible parallel. Do you see the teachings of Scripture? Do you see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as, as true wisdom, as God saying, this is the way life is supposed to be, this is a better way to do life? Or do you see it as a, you know, a Sunday school suggestion? You know? We're going to wrap up and end in communion today, and, and I'm glad we will because communion gives you a good opportunity for some self-reflection. And I would encourage you as, you, as you take this moment, when the music starts, you can make your way up and you can grab the elements and you can go back to your seat and take a moment and consider how or why you are following Christ. Consider if you are following Christ with conditions. If you're saying, I will worship you, I will believe in you, but here, it's going to be my way. It's going to be like this. And don't touch those topics. Those hurt too much. Don't ask this of me. That's too special to me. Or do you follow without condition? Do you abandon yourself and pick up your cross daily and say, I will follow? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we get this example of your son Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, if there's any other way, let it be so. He says, I don't want to do what is called upon. If there's any other way, let it be so. But if not, let your will be done. We don't just look at the example of Christ and agree with it. We look at the example of Christ as the model for our lives and that we have that same obedience. That we come to follow you without condition. That we say, Lord, I surrender everything. I sacrifice myself daily by offering up my life for your kingdom. Where do you want me? We thank you for the sacrifice you made and pray that it generates in us, in us a life of response. Thank you, Father. Amen. You can go ahead and stand up and join us with worship. And uh, whenever you like to, you can make your way down and grab the elements. We also have pre-packaged if you prefer. And take a moment when you get to your seat, asking yourself that question.